going to read from Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. You know, I've heard this story so many times before but it still seems so incredible to be true. How can you actually say that Jesus rose from the dead? And even if he did, what significance does it have for me? Well, good morning. Great to be with you all here in the auditorium and in the North Auditorium. Hello to everyone in the venue today. Grateful for that reading from Whitney the, this morning as we look at the resurrection story. My name is Adrian and I'm one of the pastors here at Carney Free. If we haven't yet met, love to connect with you after the service. You all clean up pretty well, I must say. Y'all look marvelous on this Easter morning. I also found my long lost suit jacket. You probably didn't know I had one. I peeled off some mothballs and uh, able to put this on though this morning. If you're new here today, I'd want you to know that we are a pretty casual church. We don't normally wear suit jackets, but you come as you are, however you are on a Sunday morning. Our, uh, our vision statement is every person matters. Wherever you are, we're so glad though that you're here today. We'd love for you to come back next Sunday as we endeavor to that new sermon series in the book of Romans chapter 8, this changes everything. It really is our belief that the resurrection of Christ and the power of Christ now living in us has the capacity to totally change our lives. And so we'd love for you to come back next Sunday as well. Well, I wonder, uh, do you enjoy a good conspiracy theory? Anyone want to raise their hands and admit it? A few people I see in here. Many more over in the venue, I'm sure. If you do, you are not alone. Did you know there was a 1999 Gallup survey done that indicated a full 6% of Americans still believed that the whole moon landing was fabricated? <laughs> there are many other Americans who believe that a UFO was discovered in 1947 by the Air Force in Roswell, New Mexico, and it's still under lock and key there today. There are still flat earth societies. Did you know that? Apparently, we've learned recently, they may be headed up by a couple NBA basketball players like Shaquille O'Neal. Did you hear that story? 
Shaquille O'Neal and a couple others believe that the world is flat. You'd think they were tall enough that they could actually see the curvature on the horizon. As a nation weaned on the Da Vinci Code and many other books of that genre, many other movies of that genre, we've become a nation of people that are completely skeptical of Christianity and any authoritative claims of faith. To some, the granddaddy of all conspiracy theories is none other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some would say it's a a grand hoax. The disciples stole the body and got away with it. They made up this great story for their own personal gain. But what if it wasn't a conspiracy? What if it really happened the way it's described in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What difference would that truth have on our lives today? How would we know that it was actually true and what difference would it make? I'm so glad that you asked. I became convinced of this truth, that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead some 21 years ago. And as I became convinced that he rose from the grave, I realized that I had to do business with Jesus and the things that he said about himself and the invitations that he gave to me and to every person. And I slowly, gradually, but surely surrendered my life to Christ and asked for his forgiveness and it's made all the difference in my life. I know many of you have a similar story of learning that this is not just a myth, that Jesus actually rose in time and space. It's a historical event. Today I'd like to bolster your faith in believing that this is true, that we have firm foundations of our faith. And at the same time, if you're here today and you're kind of doubting this, maybe you've read well one of those books that I've known, you've been Come skeptical of Christianity. You just come in today asking questions. On any Sunday here at Carnegie Free, we have lots of people who don't believe the Christian story yet. And we're so glad, though, that you're here. And if you're here today just asking questions, what we've done throughout this whole series is respond to numerous objections to Christianity. I believe in God, but I'm not so sure that I can believe this. I'm not sure I can believe that. Well, today we're going to respond to that common objection that we just heard as Whitney read the story. I believe in God, but how can I know that Jesus actually rose from the grave? Friends, if it's true, what we are celebrating today is the central fact of history on which we can base our very lives. So why should I believe that Jesus rose from the grave? The first reason is this. Jesus was buried in a very well-known tomb that was known by many. And then that tomb was empty on Sunday morning. This is considered a historical fact that is uh, well recognized by both Christian and atheistic historians alike. The only burial story that we have is of a very well-known man named Joseph of Arimathea who was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court for the Jews in the Roman Empire. Seems like a kind of unlikely invention, doesn't it? You wouldn't invent a man like that if you were to say that Jesus was buried and I'm just making up a hoax. It's easily recognizable name. And his tomb was well-recognized. He was a wealthy man. He was buried in a well-recognized, well-known tomb. And then on Sunday, amazingly, that tomb was empty. 
Even the Jewish leaders who had Jesus crucified acknowledged this fact. Indeed, the only Jewish account that we have of what happened after Jesus was crucified and then buried is found in the Jewish oral document that's been codified. It's called the Talmud. It's a record of the Jewish oral history that's been codified. And they say, well, the disciples came and they stole the body. The exact same thing that we see in Matthew chapter 28. I'll continue with the story that we began with already this morning. The ladies have already heard about the resurrection. They've already seen the resurrected Christ. And they go to tell their fellow disciples about what they have seen. And then verse 11, it goes on. While they were going to Galilee, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests. Again, this is the Supreme Court. All that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They gave a bribe to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Speaking of conspiracy theories. And if this comes to the governor's ears, if this comes to Pilate's ears, we will satisfy him with another bribe to keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread. It's been circulated among the Jews to this very day. So this was the alternate theory of what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday. Now, we have to just kind of say, never mind to the fact that the penalty for failing to guard the tomb while under the orders of Pontius Pilate for these soldiers, would have been death. Never mind the fact that the tomb was several tons. The stone in front of the the tomb was several tons, and it was roped, and it was bolted down. You know, across the centuries, some people have suggested other alternative hypotheses that maybe Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Or maybe the disciples just hallucinated the whole thing. It's really interesting. No one in the Roman Empire would ever say that a Roman soldier didn't know how to execute a man. They were professionals at that. And if the disciples simply hallucinated the whole thing, well, just go to the tomb and surface the body, and the whole movement is over before it's even begun. You see, the only alternative hypothesis is the disciples came, and they took the body while the soldiers were taking a nap. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do people lie? Got any experts in the room? <laughs> okay, maybe not. Not here in Kearney, Nebraska, of course. Why do, why do your kids make up a tall tale? Because they might gain something from it, right? That's right. Yeah, I heard. <laughs> kids will say so. I make up this tall tale for what I might get out of it. But does anyone make up a lie so they can be hurt by that lie? No, nobody does that. Many people will, in fact, die for a lie. That is true. Tragically, we see many terrorists dying for lies on a regular basis. Do we not? But they think they are dying for the truth. Nobody, nobody knowingly dies for a lie. It's absurd to believe that the disciples would be tortured and willingly executed for something that they knew to be a lie if his body was still in the grave. But James was stoned to death for his belief in a dying and rising Messiah. John was exiled to solitary confinement 
on a foreign island to live out the rest of his days alone in a prison camp. Philip was crucified. Matthew was slain by a sword. And Peter, Peter refused to be killed in the same manner as his Lord. And so they crucified him upside down. Now remember, the conspiracy theory is that the disciples gained something by stealing the body and making up the story. Hmm, what exactly did they gain? What exactly did they get out of this? They got torture and execution. Jesus was buried in a well-known tomb that was known by all. That tomb was empty on Sunday, and then the earliest disciples defied Caesar and then died for that belief. Why? Because they had actually seen the resurrected Christ. Second, over 500 other witnesses likewise saw the resurrected Christ, including a number of women. Every gospel story records the same thing, that Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene and a number of other women who were the very first ones at the tomb. The ladies were last at the cross, most faithful to him in his time of need, and first at the grave, there to anoint his body. Now, the only reason to believe that the women were the ones to witness the resurrected Christ is because they actually were. Let me explain this. In the first century world, in the Jewish world and in the Roman world, women had no testimony in a court of law. They didn't have a vote in society. They were considered second-class citizens. If you were to make up an elaborate resurrection hoax, if you were to make up any story, wouldn't you find the most credible witnesses that you possibly could? But Jesus reveals himself to these women who did not have credibility in that culture. The only reason to believe that he did that, the only reason to believe that these were the first witnesses to the resurrection is because they actually were. They were dismissed by Romans and Jews alike, but they were embraced by Jesus, the Son of God. And then in the creed dated to within a few years of Christ's death. Again, this is the Apostle Paul quoting this creed we talked about a few weeks ago. And he's quoting it to within just a couple years of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And he's received it probably from Peter and James and some of the others. And he passes it on to his church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received from my brothers, James and Peter and others, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's what we celebrate on Good Friday. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive today. Though some have fallen asleep, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So this is the the church persecutor, the Christian hunter, a man named Saul, who encounters the resurrected Christ, and then he becomes the Jesus preaching Paul. He goes from skeptic to believer after he encounters the resurrection. 
And it refers to James, who was another skeptic. This is the half-brother of Jesus. And if you have a brother, you would be unlikely to believe that your brother was a savior too. And James, likewise, well, was a skeptic. He grew up with Jesus. He couldn't believe that. But then he appeared to James as well, and he said, oh, he is all that he said that he was. And across every inclination of mine, he is the Son of God, so I bend my knee to him as well. And then he appeared to 500 other living witnesses as well. You know, to understand how unlikely it is that such a movement could happen, that the resurrection story is a hoax, Imagine this following scenario that's painted by Amy Hall, who's a philosopher out of California. Just imagine with me. Suppose you would. Suppose you decide that you would like to start your own religion. Okay, just imagine it. You want to start your own religion because, as they say, there's plenty of money in religion. Okay? So you decide that you want to, there isn't plenty of money in religion, let me make that clear. But you decide you want to make up your own because you've heard there's plenty of money in it. So you invent the story of an amazing man named Hobart. You head off for Los Angeles and you start proclaiming that just a couple years ago, Hobart had in that very city done countless miracles and caused such an uproar that eventually the city officials got involved and they held a public execution of him on Venice Beach for all of the community to see. But then Hobart, amazing as he was, he rose from the dead and he made numerous appearances throughout Los Angeles for everyone to see. You make that story up. How many followers for your new religion are you going to get? I mean, like, seriously, other than maybe Tom Cruise, how many followers are you going to get? You'd be lucky if you got just one. Okay, you don't make something up like this and then get a whole bunch of followers after you, let alone thousands of others, and name 500 other witnesses, most of whom are still alive. Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. Just a few years ago, go check with them. Let them validate or invalidate, well, whatever I have said. The best explanation of the evidence is Jesus actually rose from the dead, and the tomb remains empty today. Now, a third evidence for the truthfulness of this story is only resurrection explains the ongoing existence of Christianity. you got to understand that the early church staked everything on this. In that very same chapter that I just read from, 1 Corinthians 15, a few verses later, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, if Jesus had not been risen from the grave, our faith is a joke. We are to be most pitied. Our faith is futile. Just go live and eat and drink and be merry, bub, because then you die. That's what he says. That They staked everything on this. And then this new movement arises out of Judaism that has some correspondence with Judaism, but incredible differences from it in which thousands upon thousands of Jews within just a few weeks changed cardinal doctrines of their faith. Within a few weeks, they no longer believed only in a strict monotheism. They believed that Jesus was God. They started to worship him as such. They exchanged their belief in a strict monotheism for a belief in the Trinity. Within a few weeks, they halted the sacrifice system that they were practicing, 
and they changed their Sabbath day from Saturday to Resurrection Sunday. Why? Because the Lamb of God had paid for their sins, one sacrifice for all time, and he had been risen again, so there was no need for sacrifice any longer. They altered thousands of years of old conceptions of the Jewish law. They put their trust in a totally unprecedented belief, not a conquering Messiah who would come and kick butt and take names, but a sacrificial, loving, dying and rising again Messiah who would give his life for you and me and validate our faith by rising from the grave. Now, if this whets your appetite and yeah, you want to learn more about this, I would strongly encourage for you, there's a new movie that's out in theaters right now called The Case for Christ. You might have doubts, go see that movie or read the book even better by, by that same author's name, Lee Strobel. The book's probably 15, 20 years old right now. And it goes through all kinds of fantastic evidence that's agreed upon by Christians and many atheistic historians for believing that the only explanation of what happened 2,000 years ago is Christ Jesus rose from the grave. A couple years ago, I had the privilege, along with my wife, of going to Jerusalem and going on a tour through Israel. And on our final day in Jerusalem, we got to go to what was, in all likelihood, the garden tomb of Jesus. And we came upon this tomb that you see on the screen, and uh, we learned some things from the tour guide, and then we had the privilege of going into the tomb and looking at the bench where, in all likelihood, Joseph of Arimathea had laid Jesus down. Talk about a spine-tingling experience that I will never forget. And we sat and we thought for a moment and we prayed together and then we walked out of the tomb and as we walked out of the tomb, we saw this sign on the door. Still today, that is true. He is not there. He is risen again from the grave. And because he lives, so also we may really live. The grave remains empty today in 2017. My friends, this is what we base our faith on, the fact of the resurrection. I tell you what, if somebody were to live the kind of countercultural beauty that Jesus lived and teach the kind of beautiful teachings though, that he taught and do the number of miracles though, that he did and rescue people out of oppression and offer to die for my sins and then climb up on that old rugged cross and then go down to the grave and then rise again as he promised to do on the third day and actually pull the whole thing up off by rising from the grave. I don't know about you. I don't know what your conclusion will be, but I'm going with that guy. I am just going with the guy who is able to conquer the grave. How about you? Are you not going to go with him? You go with the one who is able to conquer death. This is Jesus. He offered us life, and then he gave us every reason to believe he conquered death. Jesus was buried in a well-known tomb that was known by all, and the grave remains empty. He appeared to over 500 witnesses. Believers and skeptics, men and women alike. And only the resurrection explains the ongoing existence of Christianity. Now, allow me to give you a fourth evidence for belief in the resurrection. It's a little bit different, though, than the other ones. It's this. I believe in the resurrection today because he's resurrected me. 
I believe in it because he's changed me. And he's in the process of changing me. And there was a day, though, that I was a mess, but, but he's, he's still in the process of changing me. For the first several years of my life as a Christian, I cared so much about those pieces of evidence that, that I just talked about, and I had to keep them in front of my mind because by nature I have a lot of doubts. And I just don't want to base my life on a myth. I don't know about you. I don't want to base my life on a lie. I don't want to base my life on a conspiracy theory. And so I would review different reasons for, for the resurrection. I would review different reasons to believe that God actually existed. And for a while, I was what you might call an apologetics addict. Have Bible, will babble all over you. That's what I did for many, many years. Today, it's a little bit different. I still care about all the facts, though, that I discussed here, though, this morning, but I care about them a little bit less or perhaps in a different way because I am experiencing today, as I know so many of you are experiencing today, the difference that he actually makes in your life. Maybe an illustration will help. Imagine with me, if you would, that you go to visit a friend of yours in Omaha, someone you haven't seen for a number of years, and you want to make a surprise visit to her. And you anticipate she'll probably be home from work about 6 p.m., so you drive up toward her house at about 6, and as you come around the bend toward her cul-de-sac, you, you see that the lights are on in her house. You've kept the whole thing a surprise, and as you see the lights are on in her house, your heart skips a beat because you realize you're about to see your friend who you haven't seen for some time. You get a little bit closer to, to the house, and you see the garage door is open. And a little closer still, and you see that her car is in the garage. And now you're really paying attention. Your heart is really beating quickly because you've put together the little lines of evidence and you realize, you've come to the conclusion that she is in fact home. You're not positive, but you believe with 95% certainty that she's there. So you knock on her door and she opens the door. And the moment she sees you, she embraces you. And you embrace her. And in that moment, are you thinking about all the different reasons to believe that she was home? Are you thinking about the lights being on, the garage door, or a car being in the garage? No, all of those receded into the background because you're in the presence of one that you love. You get what I'm saying here? For many of us, while we have gone through evidences, especially these past seven weeks, we've gone through any number of evidences to believe that God is who he said he was, but we're not thinking of those front of mind, and that's okay because we are in the presence of Jesus himself right now, today. And when you're in the presence of holiness, when you're in the presence of love, when you're in the presence of goodness, when you're in the presence of righteousness, when you're in the presence of beauty, you're not thinking about all the evidence of love and beauty and righteousness. You're just enjoying it. And that's how it is for those who trust in him today. My, my friends, this is the invitation for us on Easter Sunday. Don't miss this. The Apostle John put it this way, who likewise saw the resurrection and it changed his life. He said, to all who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. I don't mean to get too autobiographical here on Easter Sunday, but let me just tell you a little bit of my story. In my late teenage years and in my early 20s, I, uh, 
I went through a period of real struggle that helped lead me toward investigating these things. And part of my story was a, a sense of despair that maybe I just don't measure up to fill in the blank. And I'm not quite as good as Bruce or Sean or Richard or whoever it might be. And you couple with that, as a teenager and in my early 20s, I had a relapse in my stuttering. I was a person who stuttered in childhood and then into adulthood. I had some fluency and then I had a relapse and then all of a sudden I started to feel significant rejection when I opened my mouth, which by all appearances was often. That was a joke, sorry. <laughs> you can laugh at me, I don't mind. You couple with that, I had this pretty common disease called people-pleasing-itis. Anyone ever heard of it? You put all that together and I just was enslaved to the opinions of other people. The book of Proverbs says the fear of man is a trap. There are no truer words ever written. I was enslaved to the opinions of others because the fear of people is a trap. And in the midst of that despair, I started to investigate and believe on Christ. And it's not like things were lacking in my life. I, I was pretty good at sports. I was good academically. I had a great family. I was lacking nothing far from them. And yet, even so, there was this hole inside my chest cavity. There was a God-shaped void in me because God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And to all who believed on him, to those who receive him, to those who trust in his name, he gives us the right to be spiritually reborn, resurrected as it were, given new life. You see, this also is the promise of Easter Sunday. My friends, the resurrection promises for you today that despair does not have the final word, hope has the final word. Because he lives, so also we might really live. He is in the process of resurrecting you and me as well. And as I started to believe that God actually rose Jesus from the dead up here, and that truth started to get into my heart right here, and realizing that, that he was in the process of changing me from the inside out, then other people's opinions really didn't matter all that much to me. And I was free to begin living before an audience of God alone who gave himself on a cross and validated it all by rising from the grave. This, my friends, is the promise of Easter Sunday. He ain't done with you yet. Whatever experience you're in today, whatever circumstance that isn't going your way, whatever despair you perhaps brought into church the, this morning, resurrection promises that he's not done with you yet. There's a great story of a man, a noble man named Conrad Adenauer. He was the chancellor of West Germany immediately after World War II. And he was given the almost impossible task of rebuilding Germany after the Holocaust, after the destruction of World War II when that nation had gone into ruins. I mean, could you imagine such a task? And in the midst of all of that, he needed to confide well with some counsel. And so he asked for counsel well with a gentleman by the name of Billy Graham. 
And Billy Graham came to him in Germany, and as they were conversing, Mr. Adenauer said to Billy Graham, Mr. Graham, can I ask you a question? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Billy Graham was kind of dumbfounded by the question. He said, you know, I've kind of devoted my entire life to this one purpose, preaching the resurrection of Christ. I absolutely, undoubtedly believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Mr. Conrad Adenauer, again, you think of this, he's pondering how to rebuild Germany after the Holocaust. And he says, Mr. Graham, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. Outside of the resurrection of Christ, I don't know of any other hope for mankind. Now, our nation may not be in quite the turmoil that West Germany was immediately after World War II. But if you've watched the news, our nation's been in a little bit of turmoil, has it not? We've had a fair bit of uproar this past year or two. More riots and rage, less civility, more anger and more angst than I've ever experienced in my years here on earth. And our community has experienced more than its share of despair this past year, has it not? Carney E. Free has experienced plenty of despair in this past year. Maybe your family has. Maybe you have personally. Maybe you feel like life has just let you down. I'm here to testify to, to the truth that God's not done with you yet. The resurrection promises this final word of hope. Christ Jesus has been risen from the grave, and because he lives, so also you may really live. To those who believed on his name, to those who trusted him, to those who received him, he gave us all the right to become children of God Most High that that might be the centerpiece of our identity, that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave now lives in us by his Holy Spirit. My friends, outside of the resurrection of Christ, the final word is despair. But inside the resurrection of Christ, the final word, no matter what you're going through today, the final word is hope. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious God in heaven, how we thank you that the final word is hope. Thank you that you chose to give your only begotten son to give us life. We all would admit, Lord, that we have not done life perfectly to your standards, but yet, even so, you have given your son for us to Relieve us from despair, to die for our sins, to give us hope for today, to give us abundant life today, to give us hope for all of eternity. This is your goodwill, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. We thank you that you don't ask us to take a blind leap of faith in spite of the evidence, but that which we are celebrating today, the glory of Easter, it's true. We thank you, Lord, that we get to celebrate not a myth, but the reality that Jesus conquered the grave, and because he lives, so also we may live. I pray for any friends in this room who are struggling in any way in their family, struggling personally, struggling financially, struggling relationally. I ask God that you let them know 
that despair need not have the final word. You're in the process of resurrecting, of sanctifying, of building up ordinary men and women like us here in this room, in the venue. God, we invite you to do it. We open our hands to you and we ask that you would make us rise by the power of Christ who has risen from the grave. We'll be sure to give you all the credit, God. In your mighty name we pray together. Amen. Amen.